Hi, everyone. My name is Margarita Lyadova, and I'm the host of the We the Women podcast. Today, I'm super excited to interview Adina Lichtman, who is the founder and CEO of Knock Knock Give a Sock. Knock Knock Give a Sock works to humanize homelessness one sock at a time by bringing neighbors living in local homeless shelters and neighbors living in homes together. Her story and her business is truly remarkable and unique, and it's a huge privilege to interview her today. Well, enough from me. Let's hear from Adina. Adina, please tell us about yourself. What do you do and how did you get there? Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show today. And I'm so excited to share with you guys a little bit about how I grew up and what led me to start Knock Knock Give a Sock. So let's start with, I guess, really high school. I grew up in a modern Orthodox Jewish day school. My parents are both psychologists. My dad, also in addition to being a psychologist, actually runs a nonprofit that helped children and adults with special needs. So always my family was a very inclusive family. When we would go to different synagogues or homes or different places, we would very easily be able to talk about, oh, what's wheelchair accessible, what's not, how would deaf people or blind people be able to be here in these different places. So we're always thinking in a very inclusive way, um, especially when it came to special needs. While I was in high school, I was really involved in many different things, specifically around creating different things. So for example, when I was in eighth grade, I started a cheerleading team. When I was in ninth grade, we started doing every Friday, we did visits to the senior home. When I was a junior, we created a three-on-three basketball tournament where we raised a lot of money for a different nonprofit. And then my senior year of high school, we decided to do a senior prom for senior citizens, which was a lot of fun. All this to say that my entire high school career was very focused on me being pretty entrepreneurial. But one thing that I look back on, which I find very interesting, is with all these different experiences that were pretty entrepreneurial, but also in the charity space, you know, it was kind of a given that I would go to social work school. I always wonder if I was a boy, if I would have been pushed to go to business school, or I would have been pushed in my entrepreneurial pursuits. So that's something that kind of always sticks in the back of my head. But basically, I went through high school, then I went to NYU for college, and I was in a five-year program to get my master's in social work. And that's really where my journey began. My freshman year of college, I took a class on homelessness, and I learned a lot about homelessness. But even more than that, I came from a smaller town in West Orange, New Jersey, where everybody knew everybody. So once I got to New York City, I wanted to know everybody. So it didn't matter if you were the Starbucks barista or you were the guy who was on the street. I kind of walked through New York City wanting to know everyone, wanting to connect with everyone. So on my typical walk to class, there were one or two people who were experiencing homelessness who I actually knew personally, who I started to build a relationship with. That, on top of taking a class on homelessness, I actually learned a lot more about homelessness. And then there was one night where me and my friends were making sandwiches to give out to people who were experiencing homelessness. And we were walking around the city giving it out. And it was my sophomore year of college. And I gave it to one guy in front of my building. His name was Diego. And Diego said to me, ma'am, it's so nice you're giving out sandwiches. But one thing we could actually really use are a pair of socks. So I opened my drawer in my dorm room and I saw I had pink socks and polka dotted socks. 
and they weren't really going to fit my new friend Diego. So I decided to go and knock on every door on my floor. And in about 15 minutes, I got over 40 pairs of socks. By the time I was a senior, we had spread to over 20 college campuses and I'd collected over 50,000 pairs of socks. Now, something that was interesting in that moment was, you know, the first lesson I, I really got out of that was so often we, we think we know what the community that we're helping needs. We often assume that we know what someone needs when we're helping, but very often we forget to ask. So it was a huge life lesson for me to really start to ask people, even people who I knew on the street, what do you need? What can I get for you? How can I help you? Both to my neighbors on the street and other people just in general who I was working with to help, especially working in the social work space. So that was a huge lesson for me. But as you could imagine, having collected 50,000 pairs of socks while you're in college kind of makes you a sock celebrity. So I would start having college classrooms, high school classrooms, synagogues, churches, ask me to come in and speak about Knock Back Give a Sock and what had started. And it was interesting. I would always ask the audience two questions. And anyone listening, I want you to think about it. Who here has ever given money, food, or clothing to someone in need? And everyone would raise their hand. Then I would say, who here can tell me the name of one person experiencing homelessness? And sometimes one, two, maybe three hands in a room go up. But the majority could not tell me the name of one person experiencing homelessness. And also throughout that experience of being on a liberal college campus like NYU, I would have people make pretty general stereotypes about a community they didn't know much about. They would say things to me like, aren't most people who are homeless choosing to be homeless? Or don't people who are homeless all have mental illness? Well, we don't even use the word mental illness today. We talk about mental health. We talk about mental wellness. But somehow when it comes to homelessness, the word mental illness is totally fine. And everyone uses it. I even remember I saw a sign one day. I was on the subway. It was like a really good organization that helps people in need. And it said, come serve with us. Feed the homeless. And I remember thinking, if I saw a sign that said, feed the Jews, right? Or if we saw a sign that said, feed the blacks, it's like, that's a weird sign. Like, you feed people who can't necessarily feed themselves, right? You feed babies. You feed animals. And there was this disconnect when it came to homelessness, even when it came to our language. Right? How many times have you heard someone say, oh, I have a hole in my shirt. I look homeless today. Right? So often we don't think about being politically correct or sensitive with our language when it comes to homelessness. And there was this disconnect. So, you know, in my thought process, I, I realized it's probably because people don't know people who are homeless. Maybe if they knew people, their perspective would change. Most people don't even know that in New York City, street homelessness is only 5% of homelessness, which means 95% of people are sleeping in shelters, are sleeping in tripled up homes, are sleeping in cars. So I decided that I wanted to break the stigma around homelessness. And another thing that people don't even realize is that out of the 60,000 people who are homeless, 25,000 are children in New York City, sleeping in shelters every single night. So that's when I decided my senior year of 
college to bring 50 of my college classmates and 50 people living in local shelters to have dinner side by side. And no one was allowed to serve someone else. All the food was buffet style. And the only rule we had was that no one was allowed to sit directly next to someone they knew before walking into that room. And there were icebreakers all around the table. And at the end of that dinner, I had college students coming over to me saying, Adina, we can't tell who's homeless and who's not. They're meeting moms who had three kids who couldn't afford childcare. They're meeting dads who got out of prison but couldn't get jobs afterwards. People working minimum wage jobs, but that doesn't get you out of the shelter system. And so these were many of the stories that were happening. And what happened after that dinner is people just wanted to sit and talk and connect and hang out because everyone enjoys meeting new people and connecting. So after that experience, my senior year of college, Knock Knock Give a Sock, which was always kind of like this project, which was just collecting socks, all of a sudden a light bulb went off and I wanted to make it my career. I wanted to engage the corporate world. And after that, our mission was to humanize homelessness one sock at a time by turning transactions into interactions. So what does that mean for companies? We go to companies like JP Morgan, WeWork, Salesforce today, and we get these companies to do a sock drive or a sock collection in their office. And after they collect those socks, we then offer these companies a meet your neighbors dinner where we bring their employees and people living in local shelters to have dinner side by side. And it's probably one of the most impactful events one can hold. People walk away with their mind blown. Not, you know, so many people come into those events never having spoken to someone who's living in a homeless shelter. And now they have their phone number and they built a relationship and they stay in touch. And it's a really magical experience. I literally have goosebumps hearing this. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, that is absolutely incredible how much dignity you are able to give this type of work and these people and the change that you're able to make. So I want to ask you how you got there, right? Because before this experience, you hadn't run really a business to this extent before. Where did you learn the skills that you needed in order to run your own business? And what was that journey like? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I like to say that Google and Facebook were my first two employees. Um, and I'll go into that. But basically, it started, like I mentioned, that one night of going around knocking on doors, collecting socks. And then I made a Facebook post seeing who else would want to collect socks, right? And all of a sudden, I had these different people from different dorms and different buildings at NYU who wanted to collect socks for us. So I say that Facebook was our first recruiter. And then at a certain point, we had over 20 college campuses involved because I made a little Facebook page about it. And I was talking to different college campuses about how they best can collect socks on their campus. Then I was like, you know what? We're getting so many socks in from different college campuses. We should have sock companies matching these. So I started emailing all these sock companies. And out of the 100 sock companies that I emailed, two of them responded to me. One of them responded asking if we were a 501c3. Now, I had no idea what a 501c3 was at the time. So that's when I had employee number two. I used Google and I looked up what a 501c3 was and I realized that that means you're you know, a tax-exempt organization. 
you need to become a legal nonprofit. And I learned that companies want to give to nonprofits because they want a tax exemption. So I quickly called up my sister, who's a lawyer. Her law firm was able to help us set up a 501c3. So that was really helpful. So we were able to become a nonprofit organization. Starting it was really not about seeing the whole vision, but just kind of doing what needed to be done. Okay, I got NYU campus involved. How can I get another campus involved? Okay, I have a sock company involved. Became a 501c3 now. How do I get other sock companies to donate? Okay, now I need to figure out a place to store all these socks because my parents don't want them in their garage anymore. Okay, I have to raise money and get a warehouse. So all those different elements happen pretty naturally. And then the idea is just I want to grow the organ, like the project. At that point, it was a project, not even an organization. Bigger and bigger. And it wasn't until I did that first dinner that I saw it as being a full-time career option post-college. And even that dinner, I remember the night beforehand, I recruited 10 friends to help me make the salads and the desserts so that we would only have to order the main so that we could save as much money as possible. So these were different ways that uh, we really kind of got started and got off the ground. That's amazing. And you clearly have some resourcefulness. I want to ask you about recent events. So I think given the pandemic, homelessness has been more top of mind for people than usual. I think people notice it more, people think about it more. What has it been like for you and for your business given the current events? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. I'll give a little background. Today, pre-COVID, we were at a place where we had two full-time employees, including myself and someone part-time. We also were hiring people who were living in local shelters to help us distribute the socks. We're bringing in half a million pairs of socks a year. We're doing over 35 of these Meet Your Neighbor events a year with different companies. So we were planning on having a gala on June 3rd, and then you could imagine March hits and COVID-19 hits. And our revenue model is, you know, pretty based on these Meet Your Neighbor events. Let's say dinner costs $3,000 and we're doing it with J.P. Morgan. We'll charge J.P. Morgan $5,000 for the dinner, and we'll be able to bring in some revenue for our organization. So once COVID hit, every Meet Your Neighbor event was canceled. It was really hard for us. I had to let go of my two employees, and we had to cancel our gala, which was supposed to bring in a third of our funding. For a while, it was dark. Like, it was hard. I think as leaders, we're tested in dark times, you know, and in hard times to be creative, to think on our feet. And I really pride myself on being a pretty creative person. But when COVID hit, it was just like, I couldn't, you know, I was living with my family. I was planning a wedding, which, you know, went from being 400 people to 20 people. There was just like, I was done until I got a call from Salesforce in June and Salesforce said, Hey, we love your organization. We really want to do an event with you. What can we do? What can we do virtually? And that was the first time where I really thought about it. I was like, what can we do virtually? How can we set something up in a shelter? I, I'm living with my parents right now. I can't even go to shelters. What can I do? So in the end, what we created was a meet your neighbor panel where, you know, I reached out to four friends of mine who have all either previously experienced homelessness or are currently living in the shelters. 
and share their stories and share their journeys. We had one guy talk about how he was working at Wells Fargo and he became homeless while he was working there. We had one person talk about how, what it's like to be in a shelter during COVID, going from the shelters, being transitioned to the hotel because they're moving a lot of people into hotels, what it's like to have COVID when you're in the shelter system. We had a third person talk about living in a transitional shelter and what that means. Most people don't know about the different shelters, how there's emergency shelters, long-term shelters, short-term shelters, mental health shelters. And he spoke about being in a transitional shelter. And then we had one last woman talk about how she was inspired to start a nonprofit while she herself was living in a homeless shelter and spoke about what her nonprofit does today. So we had four people talking and sharing about their experiences around homelessness, which creates a lot of advocacy and education around homelessness and does really break the stigma around homelessness. But it's not the same as building a close relationship with someone who is experiencing homelessness, which is what our Meet Your Neighbor events create. Um, but since we did that event with Salesforce, we've reached out to several other companies um, and we have a bunch more events coming up in the making. Wow. And as a side note here, I think anyone that's listening is probably like me and is like, I want to learn more. I want to see more of this. Where could somebody get access to this content? Is it available? How can people learn more or get connected and with your business? Yeah. So there's a few different ways. Um, one, you could follow us on Instagram at knock, knock, give a sock. No spaces. It's pretty straightforward. Just knock, knock, give us off. You can check out our website, kkgs.org. Um, we have a whole video page so that you can see a lot more of the work that we do. Uh, so there's a bunch of different ways. And also, additionally, if people would want to get involved in the organization, what they can do is we don't engage so much individuals as much as organizations or companies or communities. So if you're part of a church or a synagogue or a company or a community group and you say, hey, I want to do an event with my group, you reach out to us on our website and we can try to make something happen for your community. Amazing. And I'll make sure to include all of that information in the description of the podcast. So make sure to check it out. So I want to pivot a little bit because I know there's an interesting story here. I want to talk about your Jewish background or your Jewish upbringing and how you think it has played a role in shaping who you are today and starting Knock Knock Give a Sock. Can you walk me through how Judaism has played a role in that? Yeah, so for me, Judaism has always been my guiding light in life. But it's interesting there are certain sources that have really stuck out to me over the years that really show me how important the work that we're doing is. And I'll give two examples. One, Yom Kippur is known to be the holiest day for the Jewish people every year. And there's a verse that we read in Isaiah, and it says, You think this is the day that I wanted? A day where you sit in sackcloth and ashes and you fast? This is not the fast that I desire. I desire a day in which you're clothing your neighbors and feeding your neighbors. And then there's one last line after it that says, and do not turn away from your own flesh. So one, the idea that our job in life is not just to be holy people who are following you know, Torah observance, but our job is actually to be out in the world and creating 
positivity and tikkun and fixing the world. That's our role as Jews. And we even read about on the holiest day of the year, right? When we're told that you think your fast is important, right? Because it's a fast day. Really, it's much more important to be feeding your brothers and sisters. That's like the more tangible piece. And that's obviously, you know, for us where the knock, knock, give a sock piece comes. But in terms of the meet your neighbors, there's a line that says, do not turn away from your own flesh. And how often do we see someone on the street who's homeless, who's looking at us, and we avoid eye contact because it's too uncomfortable and it's too difficult, right? And here we have a biblical text that's telling us even back in the day, in the times of Isaiah, it was still hard for people to look at poor people in the eye. And how important it is for us to do that because, and as they say in the verse, at your own flesh, right? We're all made the same. And to treat everyone the same and the importance of that. And then there is one other verse in the Torah that says, do not harden your heart when it comes to giving charity, right? And right after it says that, it says, do not harden your heart when it comes to giving charity and poverty will never cease to exist. So always keep your hand open. So what does that mean? So many times I think we come into the world and we think we want to fix this problem. So we're going to give money to have this problem solved. The idea is not to give money just to have a problem solved, but the idea is to shape us into being givers. We're not always going to be able to change the situation, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't give. So many people say, well, if I just give a dollar, that's not going to get a guy a house. Why should I give a dollar? The idea is we're supposed to always be giving. That's the type of people we should be. Our hands should always be open. And even more interestingly, in that same verse, it says, do not harden your heart when it comes to charity. And you would think, who the heck is going to harden their heart when it comes to charity? Who's going to become more cold when it comes to giving charity? But it happens to everyone. It happens to me all the time. When you're on the subway and all of a sudden this guy's telling his story and you're like, that's probably not true. Or you see a guy on the street and you're like, they're probably going to use it for drugs, right? These are all situations in which we are hardening our heart without giving with open hearts. We are literally creating a hardness of our own hearts. We're making up stories about people that we don't know. And I think it's something that happens far too often. And it's really interesting when it talks about tzedakah and charity in the Torah, that we're actually told not to harden our heart. It's one of the most beautiful things. Um, so for me, those two verses play a big role in the way that I lead our organization. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I'm absolutely blown away. <laughs> I have been blown away. <laughs> this is really incredible. And I want to ask you, since you've started doing this and working on this business and doing this type of work, is there one particular project that you're really proud of or something, a memory that you look fondly back at? And what were your takeaways from that moment? So it was my first year doing Knock Knock Give a Sock. And the first year I was running Knock Knock Give a Sock, I wasn't taking any salary. I was living off savings and working in Hebrew school in the afternoons. And I didn't know if I'd be able to raise enough money to be able to continue on. I didn't know if I'd be able to make this my full-time career. And it was a really scary time. But we were still doing events. And it was at one of our events that I had a man come over to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, Adina, I was in prison for over 20 years. I've lived in Brooklyn my entire life, and I have never seen my Brooklyn look like this. Black people and white people sitting together, sharing a meal. He said, I don't care what happens to you, but you have to keep this going. 
he had no idea that I was really struggling at that time with keeping it up. And he was like, this is the most important thing. You need to keep doing this up. This is a blessing. And his eyes were filled with tears. And to me, that's the moment that I hold on to the strongest. I also had one other person, Barbara, at one of our events. She got up and she was sharing her story. And she said, in society, I feel invisible. And when I don't feel invisible, when I feel seen, I feel like I'm annoying to society. Here in this room with all these different people, I feel like I'm a part of society. And those are the two stories that I really carry with me when the going gets tough. Because I think without certain stories, everyone has hard times with what they're working on. Everyone wants to throw in the towel at certain times. But there are certain experiences that I've taken with me that have pushed me to keep going. And for our neighbors who are living in shelters, when I go a month without having an event, I get calls from all of them. Adina, when's the next event? We miss it. We want it. So really these stories that have kept our organization alive. And something I want to add is since meeting you, I feel like my perspective on how I view homelessness, how I understand what is happening has really changed. And I hope that the people tuning in are also empowered to see that there's so much substance and there's so much humanity in this. These people want to feel like they're a part of society. And I didn't view it that way until I met you. So thank you very much for sharing that. So I want to kind of go back to something that you mentioned just now. You said for a time when you first started, you were living off of savings. You weren't paying yourself a salary. So for those listeners that are aspiring entrepreneurs, can you walk us through your thought process around how did you decide what course you would take? And at what point did you say this will either work or it won't? And what would you advise people on how they can make that decision for themselves? Um, so I have two things to say. One, don't because I, I had a job the year before. Don't quit your day job until you get too busy. What do I mean by that? Like, it took time for Knock Knock Give a Sock to get really busy. So there was a certain point where I was working on it six hours a day when I had another job. And I, I just couldn't do the two anymore. And only at that point did I jump into doing Knock Knock Give a Sock full time. So the first piece of advice is keep at your day job while working really hard on your entrepreneurial venture. And then once that's taking up so much of your time, then you can quit your day job. Two, set goals for yourself. My goal was to raise $100,000 in one year so that I would be able to allocate half to payroll and half to running the organization at the end of that year. So, you know, eight months into the year, we still only raised like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. So we got really lucky in our last two months. We had one private donor who donated $45,000, which was huge and really got us there. And I say it was like, it was really our miracle and proved to me that God really wanted this to, to work. Otherwise, I don't know where, what would have happened. And the truth is, I say I would have thrown in the towel if we didn't get to that number and raise that money. But I don't know. I think it easily could have gotten the other way and I still would have pushed at it and maybe gotten another job and worked both at the same time. Really setting goals for yourself and watching yourself achieve those goals and don't quit your day job until your your passion project becomes what is your full time. Thanks so much for sharing that. So I have just a couple more questions for you before I ask you some of the questions that were submitted by listeners. And the first question I have is, 
talk to me about what inspires you or who inspires you. Many entrepreneurs, they have either a business that they look up to or another founder they look up to. Do you have those pieces of inspiration yourself? So um, two things on that. One, there are mentors and role models. I would say for role models, there are two people. One is Nancy Loblin, who is a serial social entrepreneur. She started Dress for Success, Do Something.org, and now the Text Crisis Hotline. All like under the age of 40, she has started three extremely successful nonprofits. She is definitely one of my biggest inspirations. And then there's another woman, Sarah Blakely, who is the founder of Spanx, and she's someone who talks about failure all the time. She has used like so much of her money to just inspire female entrepreneurs. And as a female, so often I was not taken seriously. People thought my idea was cute or sweet. They didn't see how it was really making an impact. I kind of felt like my head was always getting flatter by being like patted and being like, oh, that's a sweet idea. So Sarah Blakely is the founder of Spanx and really just a badass who inspires women every day to chase their dreams. So those are the two people who I would say are my role models. And then in regards to mentors, I think I have many different mentors. When it comes to fundraising, there's one guy I go to. When it comes to planning, there's another person I go to. When it comes to marketing, I have another friend I connect with. So really, no one is you know a master of everything. So you find the masters in all the different categories that you need to build your organization. Yeah, and time and time again, when I speak to people that have started their own business, they always say, you can't do it alone. You have to find the right people and ask for help. I think they, all of them will agree that asking for help is the most important thing you can do when trying to start your own business. Oh, for sure. And by the way, there have been so many times, even in my own board meetings with my friends that I brought to be board members who work in corporate spaces where they'll say, KPI, ROI. And I'm like, I didn't go to business school. You need to tell me what that means. And it's not being afraid to ask for help. It's not being afraid to say, this isn't working and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And sometimes, by the way, to a fault, you know, we need to, especially as females, be careful about our language around ourselves. And so many times I'll be in a meeting like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but somehow it's working. <laughs> I think there's a balance and I don't think I was perfect in that balance, but being able to show that you fail and that you try again. We live in a time period where people really, we're really lucky. We live in a time period where people are really looking for failure on resumes. Um, every time that I got a rejection from any grant, I have posted it on Facebook. I posted it on LinkedIn. I posted it on Instagram. I'm a big fan of sharing failures. Either people love to watch me fail or they just can either really relate. Whenever I've shared any of my rejection letters on social media from grants or different programs we're trying to apply for as an organization, people message me, wow, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate that. So failure is great. Flaunt it. It's important. And will help grow your organization. Have people want to be a part of your journey and see you succeed. I absolutely agree. The next question I want to ask you is, I guess, like COVID aside, what's the future of your business or what's next for you? Where are you looking to head? The goal is in over the next 10 years to be able to have five program directors in the five most populated cities across America. 
where we can start building up those programs and building bridges between the corporate offices in those cities and our neighbors living in shelters and start building relationships and bridges there like we have in New York City. Amazing. And so now we're at the last question before I ask you some of the questions submitted by different listeners. And this is a question that I ask every speaker that comes on the podcast. And that is, what advice would you give to women specifically dealing with the world as it is today? I think the best advice that I can give to women is work together. We're not in a competition and we're all here to empower one another. And I think that's a theme. It's trending actually on Instagram this, this week. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. But leaning on each other. And no one achieves anything alone. You know, they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a crowd. So really find people to support you and help you. There's no way I could have done it if it weren't for the hundreds of college students who wanted to get their campuses involved, if it weren't for, you know, the dozens of companies that wanted to engage their offices, if it wasn't for the thousands of people who wanted to donate socks, right? So really nothing can happen alone. Build an army. Absolutely. And with that, I want to ask you some of the questions from listeners. So the first question is, and this one kind of hits close to home because I feel like it applies to not just nonprofits. It says, there's a lot of stigma around working in the nonprofit world because it doesn't pay too well. Do you have thoughts on how to reconcile that if you are really excited about nonprofits? And I'd love to expand that question to just being an entrepreneur in general, because so many people have business ideas and they're scared to start because they're worried that they won't make money. So I have two things to say. One, there's an amazing YouTube video. There's a speaker. I'm forgetting his name right now, but... I'm pretty sure the title goes something like why nonprofits should run like companies. The idea is that for any organization, nonprofit or for-profit, to be successful, you need to hire really talented people. So let's say our company was pretty tech-based, right? I could hire someone who's okay at the job and I can pay a certain amount, but how am I going to grow my organization if I hire the guy who could also get a job offer at Google, right? So we have to start seeing nonprofits as businesses that are hiring talent. If we want to grow the company, if we want to make the biggest impact, then we need to have competitive salaries with for-profit companies. Um, and I think that applies to startups and nonprofits. Now, in the beginning of any company, you're working at a loss. You know, the first year my salary was zero. Um, the second year my salary was $50,000, $45,000, which is a good salary, but living in New York City, it's not an easy salary to you know, have. But the idea behind it is that any company, startup or nonprofit, is going to start small. The question is, when you grow big, um, what do you do? And how do you reconcile with that, right? So for me, my salary's always stayed pretty low at this point because I wanted to hire people so that we could do more. But at a certain point, when we're like a big organization, what I do all the time is I, I look at different 990s on people's websites and I see what different CEOs of nonprofits are making and I think that in order to do the work day in and day out right 
the person can be hired to go work at a for-profit company, but we need nonprofits to change the world. So we need to create competitive salaries. So that's really the way that I think about it. And right now I'm not in a space where I am being paid a competitive salary by any means, but that's because we're only in our third year and we'll see as we grow. And I don't know how to answer the question quite yet because we're not in a place where, you know, anyone in our organization would be making even close to a six digit um, salary. So, but that's really my answer. My answer is you're always going to start small, but for nonprofits and even small startups, you need to create competitive salaries, especially if you're hiring. And the truth is so many companies pay the people, you know, the people who start them, pay the people that they're employing very often more than they're making, especially in the beginning, because you want to bring in the best talent. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. And the next question is, what do you do outside of work? What are your interests and hobbies? Oh, that's a good question. Um, One of my interests, it's not a hobby because I'd have to be very rich for it to be a hobby, um, is traveling. I try to go to one new country every year and I love being outdoors and in nature. So outdoors and nature is definitely a hobby and traveling is one of my bigger interests. But also on my own time, I paint and love dancing. I love going out dancing with friends. I'm a big fan of shaking it off in Taylor Swift's words. <laughs> That's amazing. And if you could travel anywhere, what's next on your list? So I was actually supposed to go to Peru on March 15th, <laughs> which it's a good thing that I didn't go to Peru on March 15th because then I would have been stuck in Peru for like over a month, like many Americans were. And I was planning on only going for a week. But yeah, so I think for the next foreseeable future, I'll be staying in the States, but I really want to go next either to Peru or Kenya. Both really awesome places. The next question then is, what is an unexpected challenge when it comes to doing what you do? There we go. Um, I think people who hear about our work all the time very much think, oh, like, yeah, of course we'll have people living in homeless shelters come into our office, but it's actually, you know, sometimes with certain companies, I'll have to speak to like four different people from like HR, security. So that's definitely a challenge. And then also working with shelters is a challenge because on any given day, they're focused on food and housing and the immediate needs of the people in their shelter that sometimes I'll call the shelter the day of the event that we're having. And I'm like, okay, so are you ready? Are the 20 people ready to get on the bus? They're like, oh, we only have four. We weren't able to get everyone else because things are too crazy. You know, so that those two, one, getting companies to be okay with having people from shelters come into their office and two, having the same amount of people from the shelter join as we originally planned on. Thanks for sharing that. And so the last question is, and this is a great question to kind of seal the interview on, what pieces of education do you recommend for people looking to learn more about homelessness? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think there are several books, but the truth is I don't think there's one answer that fits all. And if people really want to educate themselves around homelessness, start introducing yourself to your neighbors on your street. Listen to their stories. I think, I think that's truly the best way to learn about homelessness and, and break the stigmas. And the truth is, there are so many books out on homelessness, and you could read 
books about the housing crisis, like the book Evicted um, or Sidewalk. But really, there, when it comes to research around homelessness, the research isn't great. There's not so much funding that's going into homelessness research. And the best thing you can do for yourself is really just, in, like I mentioned, just introduce yourself to your neighbor on your street and learn their story and share their story with people. Thank you so much for sharing that. So with that, that was all the questions. Thank you so much for doing this interview. I had goosebumps literally the whole time, just like (laughs) listening to you recount all of this and how you were able to set up your business, what your business does. It's truly amazing. And I think you're going to leave all of the listeners inspired, just like me. Before we say goodbye, are there any last words that you want to share? I think I'm good. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to get involved, as I mentioned before, go to www.kkgs.org or follow us on Instagram at knock, knock, give a sock. And I'm really excited for everyone who tuned in. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Also, you can reach out on my personal Instagram as well. Adina Luchman. Perfect. Thank you so much, Adina.